All right, good morning. Glad to have you in chapel. I'm glad to be in chapel. It's an honor. I enjoyed that song, How Lost I Was, How Saved I Am. That's fantastic. And I uh, hope that your testimony as well. It is an honor for me to be here. I want you to know that outside of my family, there's no one that I love and appreciate, respect, and pray for more than you in this room. And I count it an honor to serve you. Uh, I am looking forward to seeing what God does with you uh, over the years, across the decades, and around the world. And it's just an honor for me to have had a small touch in many of your lives. And I want you to know that comes from the bottom of my heart. I truly believe it's an honor, and I count it as such. I'm honored to be here. I want to uh, thank Pastor Chapel and uh, Dr. Getch and uh, others in the administration for a chance just to spend some time with you in chapel. Some of you are seniors, I recognize that, and you're about ready to get uh, wrapped up and headed out. How many of you are seniors in your last semester? Seniors in your last semester all over the room. Good job, man. Proud of you guys. Congratulations. Look forward to seeing you on this stage in a couple of months. Uh, a lot of you are then somewhere in between in that process. You're a freshman. Maybe you're a first semester freshman. We're so glad you're here and are a part of the family. Maybe you're here and you're right in the middle. Uh, you're not at that point where you're completely lost. You're not at that point where you um, get senioritis and you like have a hard time turning your projects in. You've got to have other excuses for not turning your projects in in the middle, right? But uh, you're right there in the middle sometime. You're a, a sophomore or junior or something. And I uh, just want to let you know that it's a pleasure to just do life with you. And I hope that your life is impacted uh, at the same level or greater than my impact was as a student. I came from a uh, rural area in uh, Minnesota. Lord led me out very clearly to begin my college training here at West Coast Baptist College. I thought I would do a year and go on and study physics and wanted to do uh, astronomical research and some things that I just felt like maybe had some uh, aptitude, certainly some interest in, and God radically redirected my life, and I'm so glad that he did. I was telling a group of people a while back that a lot of the things that I still, that I loved in as a high schooler, my passions, my interests, the things that were just grab me, the, the things that I, I was good at, the things that were interesting to me, th those are all still true. I still have things that I love to do that uh, my, I'm still the same guy I was when I was 17. I'm just a whole lot older and bald and hopefully a little bit, you know, learned a little bit more since then. I really am. But here's what I found. God has the ability to add to your current desires and passions and overlay that with a calling and a leading, and God is, the Lord is the only person you can serve that can give you the passion to accomplish what he calls you to accomplish. Have you ever been sent on a task where you're supposed to go do something, you didn't have a passion for it? <laughs> That's happened to me before. But you know what? When God gives you a leading and a calling, God gives you a passion for, and it's just such a blessing to serve the Lord. If you're here as a high schooler and maybe you're visiting as a team, look forward to maybe seeing some of your games, but uh, trust that you will consider deeply the privilege of serving the Lord. And I don't know what that is uh, for sure. I'm not going to pretend to know that that looks like a specific vocation or serving, but I just know there's no life like serving the Lord. And uh, just glad to be with you this morning. Take your Bible if you wouldn't go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is a, a passage that has fascinated me for years. There's so much, obviously, in Scripture that is written for us and that I love and am trying to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is a, 
uh, very fascinating passage. We're going to unpack this this morning. Somebody once told me never preach a verse, always preach a passage, and I'll try to do that, so we'll work our way through the entire chapter today. But we'll start by reading verse number 6, having a word of prayer, and then getting into where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 6. Scripture says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for the privilege to serve you. Thank you for those that I get to serve with and those whom I get to serve. And Lord, ultimately, of course, our life is given in service for you. I do pray for uh, those that aren't with us this morning, traveling or, or uh, illness or other things. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, raise them up and bring them back safely. Father, I pray for those that are perhaps still traveling in or just getting here and are visiting our campus as high schoolers, Lord. I pray you'd help us to be good hosts and welcoming. Father, thank you for giving us this moment in our day. I know that many people had classes already and have classes yet coming up and uh, work and different responsibilities. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a little bit of, of a, a pause. I pray that you'd uh, give us a still uh, here and ability to focus and to uh, open our hearts to your word. Father, I ask that you would enable me to uh, be true to the text this morning and to uh, be a help to those that are in the room. And Father, just thank you for the privilege of knowing you and serving you. And we pray your blessing and promise uh, you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. The doctrine of separation is a critical doctrine for a New Testament believer to understand and to apply. Now, Scripture does say that there is to be a distinguishing mark for Christians, and that distinguishing mark, according to Jesus in John chapter 13 and verse number 35, is love. Christians in the first century weren't identifiable because they wore a different type of tunic than everybody else. They weren't identifiable because they had some kind of mark on their forehead, like perhaps would be true in some religions, whereas other people didn't. What Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse number 35, is that by love, by this, because of love, shall all men know that ye are my disciples. You and I, as Christians, are called to a radical love toward each other. In fact, in, in every sense of the term, we're called to a remarkable love. We're called to a kind of love that is so obvious and so ardent and so consistent that others that aren't even Christian would remark on it. And Jesus said, this is how non-believers should be able to identify who is a disciple, by your love for one another. And yet that love for one another isn't without boundaries. That love for each other is also to be understood with other teaching in the New Testament that addresses the subject of separation. As I've read through uh, and studied, I, I found that the many commands in the New Testament of separating really can be condensed into three primary groups. The, the first instance where somebody is called to separate is a Christian is called to separate from false teachers. This is by far the most common command in the New Testament as it relates to separation. We find it throughout Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse number 5, Paul writes, perverse disputings of men of corrupt mind, destitute of truth, supposing the gain is godliness from such, withdraw thyself. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 5, he writes, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. In 2 John verse number 10, 
the apostle John writes, if there come in unto you, one that bringeth not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. In other passages, we find similar teaching that a Christian is to separate from someone that is a false teacher, someone that is apostate or someone that is a heretic, or to have a separation from those people. A second category that's very clear in the New Testament where a Christian is supposed to separate isn't for non-believers, isn't for heretics. There's another category, secondly, where Christians are actually commanded to separate from other Christians. And this second category is found in the uh, writings of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. In 2 Thess uh, Thessalonians, in verse number, chapter 3 and verse number 6, Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, to withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he has received of us. Well, Paul says, this is a brother, this is another Christian, and yet this is a person you're to separate from. You're to put him out of the church. You're to separate on a personal level from this person who walks disorderly. Now, what does it mean to walk disorderly? In that passage of 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3, he's talking about people who have stopped working and instead started relying on the church's generosity and charity for their support. They thought that Jesus' coming was so imminent, it didn't make sense to have a vocation, and it wouldn't make sense to go earn some money and support their family, so they just stopped working and they started mooching off other people. And Paul says, that person is walking disorderly. In fact, to clarify that that is precisely what he means, in the very next verse, first, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse number 7, the Apostle Paul continues, For ye yourselves know, uh, for ye yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. In verse number six, separate from a brother that walks disorderly. In verse number seven, we didn't behave ourselves disorderly among you. Verse number eight, well, in what way, Paul, did you not walk disorderly? He says, neither did we eat another man's bread for naught. And we wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might be not chargeable to any one of you. Paul says, hey, I did, but Paul asks them, hey, did I rely on your generosity and give you nothing for it? Did I eat your bread and not pay you for it? Did I rely on your housing and not compensate you for it? How many of you think it would be an honor to have the Apostle Paul stay in your house? Wouldn't that be an honor? How many of you think it would be an honor to give the Apostle Paul a dinner? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you love to do that? I would love to do that. But I think if I was in Thessalonica and I gave the Apostle Paul a dinner, he would say, thank you very much. That was so enjoyable. I love the fellowship. Here's what I owe you. <laughs> Every single time, that's what he said, I didn't walk disorderly among you. And yet in that passage, he says, if a brother does walk disorderly among you, even if he's a Christian, that person ought to be someone that you separate from. So there's a category of, of command in Scripture to separate from somebody that's a false teacher. That's very do dominant. There's another instance with the church in Thessalonica where a Christian is commanded to separate from another Christian, and that is when that Christian walks disorderly and doesn't fall, follow Paul's commands and teachings in that epistle. And then there's a third category where separation is commanded as well. And the third category is the category that we're going to look at in this passage today. There are other passages where this is found. You can also find this in 1 Timothy chapter number 6 and other passages as well where this, 1 Timothy chapter 5 rather, where this is, is uh, exemplified. But here Paul is talking about an entirely different kind of separation, but yet from other Christians. I grew up in a pastor's home. A lot of you know that. My dad was an atheist uh, as a young man and then was saved later in life, went to Bible college and pastored a church as long as um, I was alive, since shortly before I was born. And he had, as many pastors do, some seasons of, of opposition. 
And I distinctly remember one of these seasons of opposition. There were some other Christians in town, some other people. My dad's a, a very, he's not a very uh, hostile, bristly kind of guy. He's, he's, he's kind of a hard guy to not, not like, in my opinion. But now, there were some people that didn't like my dad for some of the things that he taught and some of the things that he stood on. And, and I remember one of these people asking my dad, he thought he had this real clincher, and he cornered my dad one time and he asked him, hey, why is it harder, it seems harder to be a member of a Baptist church than it does to be a follower of Jesus? It's like it literally seems like you've got more requirements on being a member in your church than Jesus has requirements on going to heaven. Is that true? Is it harder to be a member of a Baptist church than it is to be a Christian? And my dad took him to this passage we're about to study this morning. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, we find Paul dealing with a problem in the church of Corinth among Christians. In fact, the entire epistle of 1 Corinthians is written, it seems, to address problems. He begins in chapter number 1 through chapter number 4 dealing with problems of division. This was a carnal church, and as a carnal church was a divisive church, and that generally follows. In chapters number 5 through chapters number 7, the Apostle Paul is dealing with sexuality and marriage. In chapters number 8 through chapters number 14, he's dealing with uh, problems of sign gifts. He's dealing with problems of uh, people taking one another to law. He's dealing with all these different problems throughout the book. And then chapter 15, he deals with problems of people that deny the resurrection. So the entire book he's dealing with problems. Chapter number 5, he deals with a big one. It's unbelievable. Look at the text, if you would, in verse number 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 1. The Apostle Paul says it is reportedly common, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Whoa. That's weird, right? So in this church, there was a prominent person, probably someone with high social status, indications would be as well, who was literally sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, it doesn't say his mother. We would assume that's not the case. It's probably his dad, like this person, likely was a person of high rank and high status and high wealth and probably had remarried somebody that was a lot younger and probably this person was, um, you know, the kind of person that rich, influential, uh, wealthy men may choose to marry as a second wife. Uh, in our culture, this would be maybe sometimes happen as well. So this is probably a very attractive, much younger than probably his dad, and yet it was his father's wife, and here's a guy who's a Christian who's not only committing fornication, he's committing fornication with his father's wife. That's unbelievable. That's gross. That's disgusting. That's, that's unthinkable, right? In fact, there was a Roman law against that. It's not just your standard as a Christian that says that's wrong. Roman law says that was wrong. Under Roman law, there's no public prosecutor, so in order for somebody to be prosecuted for a crime, you had to be charged privately, and you couldn't really charge someone unless you were a, of an equal or higher status. So really, high-status people in that society were rarely prosecuted for breaking the law. And this person likely was not being prosecuted for this. In fact, it was such an open thing. It was such a well-known thing that people were just kind of not only accepting of it, but almost, almost, in fact, it says boastful of it. They were proud of this. 
I know that all pride is sin, but did you realize that much sin causes pride as well? You recognize that sometimes in our lives when there's a sin that seems for a while to go unpunished, people can actually become boastful of their sin? And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. Within the church, there's this horrendous sin, this, this fornication. And Paul says, hey, fornication, this, this stuff shouldn't name, be named once among you. It's commonly reported. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have email. He'd heard about it all the way uh, where he was. And he's writing back, this is a church that he loves. These are people he knows. Acts chapter 18, during the second missionary journey, we find the start, the founding of the church at, uh, in this place by Paul himself. And this place of Corinth, we know it's a wealthy place, we know it's a prestigious place, we know it's a sinful place, and yet that, that, in, that got into the church. The wise uh, preachers of uh, old years used to say that when, a, when the boat is in the water, that's good, but when the water is in the boat, that's bad. That's really what happened here. Here's a church that is in Corinth, but Corinth is in the church. And what Paul is saying in this passage is it's not good to be boastful, and it's not good to have that fornication, and you've got to deal with it. It seems like the church was kind of stuttering in their reply. They weren't sure what to do. Some people maybe thought this was okay, and some people maybe didn't think this was okay, and the apostle Paul, he knew for sure this is not okay. And what he says in this passage is not this person isn't saved, He's not saying this person isn't going to go to heaven. He's saying this has to be dealt with. We see that in verse number two. He says, Ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you. That's the, that's the sentence. He needs to be taken away from you. This needs to be a separation that happens. Verse number three, For I verily as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that had done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you have gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul here very clearly says, hey, this has to be dealt with. You have to separate this, what we call church discipline. This has to be, this has to be cut out of the church. Because he says, this is, going to, this is going to contaminate the whole church. And the sentence of Paul is, this, has to be, this person has to be separated. And the last point I want to make on this is look at the purpose in verse number 6 of that separation. He wasn't to be separated just for the health of the church. He was to be separated for his own restoration as well. I did a little bit of study this last week on these two words, punishment and chastening. The Bible talks about punishing, usually in the context of someone being punished for sin by God. In the New Testament, it's used over nine times. Of those nine times, how many times is a Christian punished because of sin in the New Testament? The answer is zero times. The word chastening is uh, the picture of a father and his son. Chastening is also used nine times in the New Testament. How many times is chastening used in the context of a Christian? every single time. Do you realize, young person, God will not punish you for your sin? Your sin's punishment was born entirely by Christ on the cross. But God will 
if you are his child, chasten you for his sin. Now, I'm not telling you that punishment and chastening feels a lot different in the moment. It's going to be pretty similar. But what I want you to recognize is the difference is the purpose. Because chastening isn't punitive. Chastening isn't isn't the same as punishment. Your punishment was borne by Christ on the cross. Chastening has the purpose of restoration. And there are consequences for sin. And God will chasten you for your sin. And it won't be pleasant. But the purpose of God's chastening for his children is always the restoration of that relationship. And by the way, we see that right here in 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 as well. So the first thing we see is that Paul addresses this problem in the church, this sin in the church, and he gives a sentence, his mandate, his judgment, that separation needs to occur. He then turns and he tries to explain why. Because Paul doesn't just want this church at, uh, this church at Corinth to do the right thing for the wrong reason. He wants them to have the right reason. I love his explanation. He says here in verse number 7, Purge out the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Like, get rid of the leaven because you are unleavened. For even as Christ is our Passover, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Let us keep the feast. Verse number 8, what feast is he talking about? Let us keep the, Christ is our Passover, let us keep the feast. What feast? The feast of Passover. Who's us? Is he talking to Jewish people here? Us is the church. Let us keep the feast. You know what he's saying here? He's saying this picture of the Passover is not something that's just this Old Testament superstition. It's not just this, 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 this thing that was under Moses and now we're, we're, we're free from it and it has no meaning to us as a Christian. In fact, the meaning is richer and deeper and fuller for us as a Christian. Because Christ is our Passover lamb. We are living what that was a mere picture of. What the Passover in the Old Testament was a mere shadow of. We in the New Testament are living proof of what that was. And you know what that is? That Christ is our Passover lamb. That he bore that, that cost for us. I was reading Spurgeon on this, and he said that you can imagine the Jews in the Old Testament as they painted the blood of that Passover lamb over the door, doorway. He said, as the death angel came, you could stand in the doorway and look in the face of the death angel and dare him to enter your home because the blood over the mantle is what God required. And you know that's true for you and me as well. If you are under the blood of Christ, you can look at the death angel in the face and you can recognize that the blood that God requires is applied to your account. If you are in Christ, you're safe, you're redeemed, you're unleavened. Amen. Now here's the amazing thing. You can't unleaven anything once it's been leavened. I've not done a whole lot of baking in my life, but I know it takes just a little bit of yeast to knead into that bread and you let it sit. And it, you know what Paul says? It's absolutely true. It leavens a whole lump. But if you take a whole lump of bread that's been leavened, I say, hey, Dr. Art, here's a lump of bread that's been leavened. Can you take the leaven out? Can you call a, a, a chemist? Can you get somebody in here? Can you get a really expert baker? Maybe somebody that has a big TV show. Can we unleaven this leavened bread? The answer is you can't do that. But you know who can remove the leaven of sin from your life and from my life? That's Jesus. Amen. 
See, Christ can unleaven the leaven in my life. Christ can redeem the sin that I've committed. Christ, that, Christ can forgive the shortcomings that I've had. And what Paul is saying is, you are unleavened. You are redeemed. You are living proof of the Passover sacrifice. And because of that, I want you to realize the why. Because the why is Jesus. Jesus freed you from that. Jesus allows you to live a life today that's radically different from the life before. As they would prepare for the Passover, they would sweep and they would clean and they would get the leaven out of their house. And what, what Paul is saying is, as a Christian and as a church, we need to be continually sweeping out the leaven in our life as well. We as Christians are living a perpetual Passover because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful standing that we have. So Paul says regarding the sin in the church, he wants it dealt with. Paul then explains the rationale for that theologically and why it's so important and what the picture of the Passover was. And then for me, the most fascinating part, I believe, of this entire passage begins in verse number 9. In verse number 9, Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle. Now you all know about Paul, and you know about the epistles, you know about the church here at Corinth. Let me ask you a, a trick question. How many letters did Paul write to Corinth? The answer is, we don't know. Now if you thought two, that's the correct answer to a different question. If I ask how many letters to Corinth are included in the New Testament, the answer is two, right? But in verse number 9, Paul refers to an earlier letter. Do you see it, verse number 9? Now this is 1 Corinthians. He's not talking about half Corinthians here. It's not in the Bible. So there's a letter that Paul wrote that's not a part of the New Testament. It's not a problem. We can deal with that in bibliology. The reality is we have everything that God needs us to have. But there was an earlier letter that Paul refers to here. Do you see it? Verse number 9. The earlier letter. Here's what he said. Verse number 9. I wrote you an earlier letter. This earlier epistle. And here's what I said in that letter. Not to keep company with fornicators. Now this is a really important point because that's what he's talking about, right? He just said, hey, there's fornication going on in the church. Get that lump of leaven out. Separate from it. This is open sin, and a Christian is commanded to separate from another Christian living in open sin. Then he says, oh, okay, remember that earlier time I told you to separate from fornicators? He's like, you guys got me entirely wrong. <laughs> Have you ever gotten Paul wrong? Have you ever misinterpreted Scripture? I like to remind students in my class, an inerrant inspiration doesn't guarantee an inerrant interpretation. I've been wrong before when I tried to interpret the Word of God. It's never been wrong, but my understanding of it has been incorrect. And what Paul says here is, hey, you misunderstood what I previously wrote. What did he write? He wrote, don't keep company with a fornicator. Verse number 10, how did they take it? What they understood was different than what he means. They thought he meant everybody that's a fornicator should be cut out of your life. Kind of sounds like what he means. Hey, if somebody is living in sexual immorality, you're done with them. Don't have a relationship with them. But he says in verse number 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world. <laughs> I said, don't keep company with fornicators, but I wasn't talking about unsaved fornicators. 
He said, I told you to separate from people who are involved in sexual sin, but I didn't mean everybody that's involved in sexual sin, like even the unsaved people. What would happen, students, if I decided that I was going to separate from everybody living an ungodly life? Well, you could imagine, you could give me an appropriate answer, but Paul answers that question here in verse number 10. What would happen, Dr. Rasmussen, if we decided we we're going to try to separate from all fornicators and everybody that's not living according to the biblical ethic? Verse number 10 tells us what would happen. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or the idolaters for what? Class what? Then we must needs go out of the world. Hey, is that our commission? Go ye out of the world. No. In fact, it's literally the opposite direction we're supposed to be headed. Right? In the high priestly prayer in John chapter number 17, Jesus said that we are not of this world. He said it three or four, maybe four or five times. We are not of this world. I'm not of this world. You're not of this world. How many of you recognize today we're not of this world? You ever heard the phrase, we're in the world but not of the world? That idea comes from John chapter 17. It's a very good summary of that. But even a better summary of that is we're not of this world. We're sent into this world. That's really what we're commanded to do. You can be not of this world and not in this world and go live in a monastery somewhere and not fulfill the mission that God has sent his church to fulfill. What Paul is saying here is if you try to separate from everybody, saved and unsaved alike, without making a distinction, you're not going to be effective at being ambassadors for Christ in this age. Now this is something to me that I, I didn't see it the first time I read this passage or the second or the fifth time I read this passage. Because in my mind, I've got this mindset that, that, okay, I'm supposed to be separate from the world, right? Separate from the world. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be separate from the world? Does it mean, does it mean to wear a different style of clothes from the world? That's what it means to be separate from the world? It doesn't mean that I'm gonna only read Christian books from Christian publishers bought at Christian uh, bookstores. I'm going to buy Christian cars fixed by Christian mechanics and drive on Christian roads to Christian. Like, like, what does it mean to be separate from the world? What does that mean? How many you recognize this is a big question for Christians? A lot of different Christians wrestle with this, right? What does it mean? Because here's the thing. If you're going to pursue holiness, you're going to live a life that is distinguished by separation. But if you're going to pursue separation, you're not necessarily going to be living a life of holiness just as the Pharisees. In fact, I think we could say it like this. You cannot be too holy. I had a guy one time years ago, a very wise person, say, Toby, you cannot be too holy. And he was absolutely right. I've got no caveat on that statement. We're called to be holy. Could you be more holy than Jesus? No, Christ. That was not a trick question. Could you be more holy than Jesus? No, Jesus is our example, right? Jesus is our model. Jesus is perfectly holy as the Son of God. You cannot be too holy, but young person, do you recognize you can be too separated? Now, I know that doesn't sound right, but I didn't say it first. Paul said it first, right? It's what Paul's saying in this passage. Jesus couldn't have been more holy than he was. Jesus could have been more separated than he was. Is that true? He was called a friend of publicans and sinners, right? Some of the things they said about Jesus wasn't true. He wasn't a glutton. He, didn't, he wasn't a wine bibbler. That wasn't true about Jesus. Some of the things they said about Jesus was true. He was a friend of publicans and sinners. 
Do you understand what Paul is saying here? We are sent, we are in the world, but not of the world. We are sent to be here. What Paul is saying here is if you try to live a, a life where you hold the Christian ethic on everybody around you, you're misunderstanding what the Bible says in this regard. Verse number 11, he says, But now I've written unto you to, to not keep company, here it is, if any man is called a brother. If any person is called a Christian, everyone in the room is a brother in this sense. I'm a sister, right, same thing, right? If, if, if someone identifies as a follower of Christ, Paul says, hey, if, if someone identifies as a follower of Christ, verse number 11, and is a fornicator or a covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunker or extortioner with such a one not to eat. For what have I to do for what have I to do to judge them that are without? The answer is nothing. I'm not, I'm not responsible for judging. Who's responsible for judging those that are without? That's entirely something I'm going to leave to God. But then he asks, do not ye judge them which are within? And in the next passage, he's going to talk about law and, and lawsuits and stuff. It all ties in. Verse number 13, for them that are without, God judgeth, but are therefore put away from among yourselves this wicked person. The reality is, in this passage, Paul is calling this church to a holy life, but he's not just wanting them to do the right things, he wants them to do them for the right reasons. He wants them to understand why they're living a certain way. The other person, I want the same for you, and I want the same for me. I want to live a life that is wholly dedicated to God. I want to live a life of reckless abandon for the cause of Christ. I want to live a life that is completely in line with the teaching of Scripture. And I've got to recognize that sometimes there are some separations that I am called to make as a follower of Christ. And I've also got to recognize that I am called to minister among a group of people. How many of you have figured this out? They don't share a biblical ethic. Right. You ever get frustrated when you're watching something on TV? And I know that's, you know, over the break or whatever. And you're seeing something on news and, and, and you just, it's just so far from a biblical ethic. What do you do? It's okay to cancel a certain channel and it's okay to cut certain friends out of your life. By the way, 1 Corinthians we are told, told in verse number 15 that evil communications corrupt good manners, right? Who has evil communications in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, people who deny the Trinity. People who deny the resurrection. Uh, we are told in 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter number 6, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. The verse right before it, though, says, what concord hath Christ with Belial? What communication has the house of God with the house of idols? You see, God is calling this separation in the area of these beliefs, but he's also calling us to serve and to minister in and among a group of people that don't share a biblical worldview. So I'm calling you today to live a life of biblical separation, of Christ-centered holiness, and of theological understanding for what our mission is. The fact is, many of you in the room may, like me, have some areas in your life where we're not doing the wrong thing, and not only are we not at times repentant, there are times that we can literally be boastful of the sin that we allow in our group. Are there friends that you have 
that talk dirty and think it's funny? Are there conversations in the dorm that you would blush if Jesus heard, but you giggle when you don't think he's there? See, the reality is we are called to hold ourselves to a higher standard than we hold the world. In fact, we're not called to hold the world to a standard. That's God's business. But in the church, between each other, we're called to live a holy life. And the fact is, I want to ask you this morning, as we close, are there areas in your life that are not pleasing to God that you've tolerated or perhaps even celebrated? I want to ask you this morning, are there areas in your life where you are not living the perpetual Passover that Paul says as Christians we're privileged to live? Christ is our Passover lamb. Do you recognize that you are completely redeemed in Christ? And by the way, that doesn't mean now go sin. That means now live a life like Jesus. And then in this last passage, are you like me? Someone who at times is willing to substitute the pursuit of a separated life over a pursuit of a holy life. We're not called to do less than separate from the world. We're called to do more. We're called to live holy, like Jesus did in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation.